Uh, if you're new with us this morning, my name's Chris, and I'm one of the pastors on staff here. And I just want you guys to know that we're really honored that you guys choose to be here this morning, and we just want to welcome you. And um, again, to reiterate what Angela said, if there's any way we can help you guys, assist you guys, serve you guys, then please let us know, because that is really why we exist, is to serve the church body. And so we're thankful for each one of you, and we pray for you guys all the time, and um, yeah. So... In spite of a crazy week that we had, I'm going to ask you guys to stand up. Did anybody not think this week was kind of crazy? Okay. Um, I want you guys to take a deep breath, and you have to let it out, because that's what constitutes breathing. It's in and out, and we're going to pray. <laughs> Jesus, I thank you for each individual in this room, and Lord, we do not think it's coincidence that they're here this morning. Uh, Lord, we count it an honor and a privilege to open up your word. We count it an honor and a privilege to open up our mouths and proclaim and sing worship to the Most High God. And we do not take this lightly this morning. And so I pray, Jesus, that you'd move in this place. I, pr I pray, God, that you would take your word from your book and you'd relay it best you can through this crazy mouth of mine. And would you plant your word in the hearts of the people that are here this morning and do a work above and beyond whatever we could ever ask or imagine. Lord, I know there's people here who come here this morning just feeling like they're bearing the weight of everything going on and um, even taking that breath right now was hard to do for them. And I'm praying that the peace and the rest of God would just transcend in this place and that you'd have your way in this place, Jesus, and remind us who you are, who it is we serve. And may we be a people that not only come here to listen to your word and sing our praises to you, but be a people that leave this place to go and do likewise. And so, Jesus, we give you this time. We devote it to you. We thank you for the honor and the privilege to be here in your name. Amen. Awesome. You have to stay standing through the whole service. So, sorry. All right. Especially everybody online. You have to stay standing through the whole service in your bed. Um, <laughs> if you guys would turn with me to Matthew chapter 9. That's where we're going to be out this morning. We're going to be almost wrapping up Matthew chapter 9. And uh, next week, actually, Dan Stolbarger is going to be sharing the last few verses of Matthew 9 with us. But um, I wanted to just kind of recap a few things for us before we dive into this week's text. We're going to be specifically in verses 27 through 34 this morning. But I want you guys to think about what we've seen over the last two chapters in the book of Matthew, in Matthew 8 and chapter 9, what we've seen in the life of Jesus. And I want you to consider, again, all the things we've seen in the last couple months. For those of you that are new with us, we've literally been in the book of Matthew for like a year now. But we've been in chapters 8 and 9 for the last few months, and we've covered a lot of ground. But some of the things we saw in the last two chapters in the book of Matthew were, one, we saw Jesus commanding the wind and the sea. Two, we saw Jesus casting out demons. We saw Jesus raising the dead. We saw Jesus healing those with leprosy and paralysis and sickness and all different kinds of diseases. Um, we saw Jesus, sometimes he was literally going out to go heal people. And then there were points in Jesus' ministry where he didn't have to go anywhere because people were coming to him. We saw times in Jesus' ministry where he had to speak. And we saw times where he didn't say anything. We saw times where Jesus had to approach somebody and touch them to be healed. We saw other times where the healed actually came after Jesus and touched him. And oftentimes, Jesus worked in response to somebody's faith. Somebody had the faith to believe that he could do 
what it is he said he would do. So oftentimes, again, he worked in response to somebody's faith, but then there were these other times where he actually worked with people who had no faith expressed at all. We also see, in fact, that there are times where Jesus works and moves in the face of, in the face of people's complete disbelief. Like they didn't believe, and Jesus still moved. Um, Jesus has said no to the scribes and the Pharisees, which were the religious elite of his day. And yet he's called these tax collectors, these sinners, to follow after him. We saw that Jesus has chosen at one point not to fast, and instead of fasting, he sat down and ate with sinners and publicans, tax collectors. And all of this we've seen in the last two chapters of the book of Matthew. And my question for you this morning is what are we supposed to do with this? What do we do with all of these things that we've read? Because I, I don't know if you're like me, but I have the tendency sometimes to get lost in the word, reading through it, and almost believing that it's like a story, like some sort of fictitious deal that I'm reading, and I forget the fact that this is real life. This actually happened in real time. And unfortunately, what I think for you and I is we have this book to read, and we can read it from the beginning to the end. We sort of know what happened, and we know where things are headed. We know exactly what Jesus did, and yet what we're reading in the book of Matthew is Jesus' life on this earth prior to people knowing what was going to happen, that he was going to lay down his life for others. So these disciples that are following after him, these people that are coming to him, that are asking to be have no clue what's actually going to happen. And my question this morning again is, in light of what we've seen, what is our call? What's our call? What's our role? Because I think that we can't read the word and not think that it demands some sort of response. And I think that our call is to respond to what we're reading. None of us are exempt from this. Some of you will neglect everything you read and not want to have anything to, G to do with Jesus, and that's still a response. Deliberately choosing to disobey and just go live your life and do your own thing. Some of you will read, pray, seek the Lord, and a fire will be ignited in you, and it's like you're going to chase after him with everything you have, and you'll do anything to seek after him, and you'll leave it all behind in order to chase after Jesus. But I, my challenge to you this morning is that I think that it demands some sort of response to what we see in the life of Jesus. And this narrative of the life of Jesus can't be read with ask, without asking yourself, what do you do with it? I don't know if you're like me, but I, I cannot read the Bible and go like, all right, Lord, what, what do I do with that? What is the application for me? I think we're supposed to respond. And according to your makeup, who you are, where you've come from, yada, 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 I think all of us as individuals, we respond a little bit differently, and that's a given. But some of these differing responses to the same Jesus, I think, are what we actually see illustrated in the passage that we're talking about today. For example, in light of what we see in Jesus, some of us respond with belief. We're all in. Others will not respond with that same belief. And you see this in the first three verses of this passage that we're going to be in today. So if you guys would look at chapter 9 with me. Open up your Bibles. If you have paper copies, that's awesome. If you want a paper copy of a Bible, there's some on the table over there. Um, they'll also be on the screen, but I would just encourage you to have one of these because I think it's more fun to read from than, than a phone. Um, look at verse 27 of chapter 9. It says this, As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him. 
crying out, have mercy on us, son of David. And when he entered the house, the blind men came up to him and Jesus said to them, do you believe that I'm able to do this? And they said to him, yes, Lord. And then he touched their eyes saying, it shall be done to you according to your faith. And their eyes were opened. So I wanna stop there for a second. This is the first response that we see out of these people. In light of what we've heard about Jesus, what we know, where he's come from, and what's going on, these two blind men respond to Jesus with belief. And so the question that Jesus asked them was what? He said, do you believe? And what was their response to Jesus? Yes, Lord, we believe. But what is it that they believe specifically? I mean, it's easy to say I believe, but like then my question to you would be, what do you believe? And so what do they believe specifically about Jesus? And there's two things that I want to go over to this morning that, that they believe specifically about Jesus. One is they believe in who Jesus actually is. The, the reason that we can say that with just such strong conviction, that they believe in who Jesus is, is because of how they cry out to Jesus. Look at the end of verse 27. They cry out, son of David, have mercy on us. And one of the questions you'll have to probably ask as you read through this text is what does he mean, what do they mean when they say, have mercy on us, son of David? What does this mean? Why did they cry out the statement? We all know who Jesus' dad was. Who was Jesus' dad? Good old Joe, right? They don't say, have mercy on us, son of Joe. They say, have mercy on us, son of David. Why don't they cry out, have mercy on us, son of Joseph? Anybody who's new to this and you're just kind of digging in, um, that might be a little confusing for you. Like, my dad's name is Jim, and so if you cried out, hey, son of Bob, I'd probably be like, uh, hold on one sec. That's not my dad's name. His name's Jim, right? So why are they crying this out? And there's two reasons that they're doing this. The first is because David is the family tree in which Jesus comes through. So David, when we talk about David, we're talking about King David, the great King David, the King of Israel, Jesus was a part of the lineage of David. And so his ancestry pointed back to the lineage of David. And so from that standpoint, it's correct calling Jesus the son of David. It makes sense from that standpoint. In fact, if you remember the very first verse of the book of Matthew, when we first dove into this book, chapter one, verse one, there's this massive genealogy that we gotta figure out what to do with. And you're just kind of tracing back all of these people to see where Jesus came from. But the, the, the verse one of chapter one starts out like this. It says, the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So that's where we started this book. So for those of you that have had the questions before of like, what does it mean when he says, have mercy on us, son of David? That's the first reason, that it points back to the lineage of David. And so that's the first reason. But more importantly, they cry out, have mercy on us, son of David, because son of David was one of the most common Jewish titles that was used in connection to the promised Messiah in the Old Testament. It was a title for the, the, the Messiah that was to come. And so this Messiah was promised to the children of Israel. They anticipated, they awaited this coming Messiah. I mean, in the next month, we're gonna start a season called Lent. Anybody familiar with Lent? What are we anticipating when we, when we celebrate Lent? We're anticipating the coming arrival of the King, of Jesus, of the Messiah. That's what we're anticipating. When we talk about Christmas and the birth of Jesus, it isn't all about Christmas trees and Santa. What is it about? God himself sent his son, Jesus, in the flesh 
to live a perfect life, to die a crazy death on our behalf, to be raised again, to grant us eternal life. Like We're literally in the next six weeks anticipating the arrival of the Christ child that's to come, the Messiah. And the Jewish culture would have understood this. So he, he promised about 600 years prior, um, he was promised about 600 years prior in the book of 2 Samuel. Uh, it said, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12 and 13, Nathan shares this with David. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So 600 years prior to Jesus on this earth, this is being prophesied that this would happen. And so one was coming in the line of David, the son of David, to establish an eternal kingdom not set up on this earth, that all of Israel at this time was living in expectation towards. They could not wait to see this take place. And this is where for you and I, like we, we're sort of shortchanged a bit because we're not really anticipating anything because we know how the story ends, right? For these people, they had no idea. All they could do is make the connections with the oral traditions of what had been passed down to them from the prophets of old, down through their families, through the lineage, and then they're hearing the stories of it. And so when this son of David comes on the scene, all things start firing in their hearts and in their heads going like, is this it? The one that we've heard about for years and years and years to come. The one our parents and our grandparents told us about. And so at Jesus' birth, we read about this longing of Israel, waiting in great anticipation for the redemption of God's people. And if you remember back to Jesus' birth, the angel Gabriel said to Mary in Luke chapter 1, verse 32 and 33, he will be great and he will be called the Son of of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob. Jacob is another word uh, for Israel. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So what's significant about this statement from Gabriel to Mary is that Gabriel quotes partially from that same passage we just read in 2 Samuel 7. And so then fast forward to the birth of Jesus, and then to the Sunday before his death, Palm Sunday as we refer to it, when Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem, and this is what we read in Matthew chapter 21, verse 9. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And the fact that the Messiah would be coming from the house of David or the, the lineage of David wasn't lost on those who even opposed Jesus. It wasn't just all about those who were with him. It was even those who opposed him acknowledged this. In Matthew twenty two forty two, it says, now while the Pharisees were gathered together, remember the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious, the religious elite, elite of the day, and Jesus asked them a question, saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. So even those that were opposed to Jesus acknowledged the fact that he was from the lineage as the son of David. And so as we look back on the first nine chapters of Matthew, this is the first time in, in Matthew's gospel that anyone addresses Jesus with the title son of David. Jesus isn't referred to this in the book of Matthew up until this point. 
So just keep that in your mind as we walk through this passage. So it's taken nine chapters, chapters to get to the place, even though chapter one refers to him in the genealogy. It's taken nine chapters to get to the place where anybody addresses Jesus as the son of David, as the Messiah. And so in these blind men, in their crying out, these blind men declare their belief that Jesus is the long-expected Messiah. He's it. And so their cry is, son of David. And it actually demonstrates that they believe who Jesus is, that he's finally here. So understand what's being unlocked in their hearts because they're realizing the one we've heard about, the one we've been told about, the one we've hoped for and anticipated this whole time, he's here. This is him. And that's not all that they believe. One, they believe in who Jesus is. But two, they actually believe in what Jesus can do. They believe that Jesus would have mercy on them and that he could heal their blindness. And here's the amazing part about this text is that it's telling that the first people who cry out and who address Jesus as son of David are what? Blind. The first ones to acknowledge him as Messiah are blind. And I don't think it's a coincidence. It's not simply just a happenstance event that these blind men who cry out, have mercy, compassion, pity on us, son of David, Messiah, Christ, the anointed one. Don't miss this. It's hugely significant for us. And I want to explain to you why. One, because in the Old Testament, there's not one record of any healing of a blind person throughout the Old Testament. In the whole Old Testament, there are healings that take place, but never someone recovering their sight. That's the first part. Second, in the Old Testament specifically, we read that giving sight to the blind was a divine activity. There was something really special about it. If you remember the event where Moses is called by God to go into Egypt and set the people free, Moses pushes back and, and he has this issue in regards to his gifting and his history. And God says to Moses in Exodus 4, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? So in the Old Testament, there's no healings. Number two, sight to the blind was this divine activity. Like only God could do this. Three, that giving sight to the blind was one of the activities strongly connected to the coming Messiah. So if you go back to the book of Isaiah, chapter 35, it says this, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped, then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute, then the tongue of the mute sing for joy. And I want you to keep this in mind as we scurry along through this passage. So Isaiah, again, the prophet, looking back 800 years prior to Jesus' Jesus' arrival on this earth, to the time uh, Isaiah was writing 800 years prior to Jesus' arrival. saying that this is what would actually earmark the Messiah's ministry, at least part of it. Sight to the blind. And, and unleashing the tongue so that they can sing songs of praise and worship, like something be unlocked, unlocked in the heart, in the, in the mouth, like in the eyes. Sight to the blind, unleashing the tongue. And that's what Jesus was about. Like that's what his ministry would be all about. That's the purpose of his coming, that we will see and that we will sing we won't just see, but we will proclaim. 
And so Matthew 9 is one of these fulfillment passages. You see things being foretold of in the Old Testament 800 years prior. Now they're happening in the life and the ministry of Jesus. Fourth thing is that Jesus performed many healings, but the most frequent healing was giving sight to the blind. And again, this shouldn't surprise us. If you recall the launch of Jesus' ministry, as Luke records it, in Luke 4, Jesus quotes from the book of Isaiah. And as a side note to you guys that want to kind of dig into scripture on your own, something that I'm currently learning, and this may be super elementary to the rest of you, but is that if you really want to appreciate the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, then I challenge you to go read the book of Isaiah. Because if you read the book of Isaiah and then go read through the Gospels, having read the book of Isaiah, your heart's going to go, like, your mind's going to be blown because what you're going to see is something written, prophesied about 800 years prior, and then all these little details of Jesus' life actually start to make sense because he came to bring them all to fruition. He was the fulfillment of all of these things. And so it's so intriguing to read the book of Isaiah and then read through the Gospels. But in Luke 4, Jesus grabs the scroll and he reads it, and he reads from the book of Isaiah. Jesus does in Luke 4. And he reads from Isaiah 61, and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And so this is what Jesus' ministry was all about. Ironically enough, the Bible doesn't recount any other healings of blind people after the Gospels, unless you count Paul as somebody who is temporarily blinded. But it's it. Like in the Gospels, we get a bunch of records of it, and then after it, we don't see this. Um, Number five, physical blindness is often sometimes used in Scripture to speak of spiritual blindness. And so here's the other tie for you and I. Real quick, if you go to Matthew 13, verse 14. Here's another quote from the book of Isaiah. He says, indeed, in their case, that's the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says you will indeed hear, listen to this, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. And so the context here is that Jesus is talking about parables because people keep asking him throughout his life, Why do you teach in parables, Jesus? And some people say that he taught in parables because Jesus just liked telling stories and giving really good illustrations. But I want to challenge you this morning that that's not really the case. Jesus taught in parables for a very specific reason. Jesus used parables because parables actually encourage us to dig deeper and they cause us to ask questions that demand some sort of response. So how many of you have read a parable before? most of you. How many of you read that parable and walked away like, oh yeah, I got it. Totally get it. That's awesome. (laughs) Anybody? Like most of the time you stop because you're like, what in the world is Jesus saying? It causes you to dig in, to ask questions. Like what does the soil mean? What's the seed? Who's the sower? And it encourages us to go to the Lord and demand some sort of explanation. And so the parables honestly help us discover more about who Jesus is. But the primary reason that Jesus taught in parables is because they were ever seeing but never perceiving, meaning they had physical sight, but they weren't getting it because they didn't want to get it. So when you piece all of this together, do you guys see like what's significant 
that it was the blind who first declared the messiahship of Jesus. Is this not awesome? And this isn't coincidence. And do you also see the, how, how these two beliefs are connected? That these blind men didn't believe Jesus could heal just simply because, or come to him for healing just simply because they believed Jesus was an awesome miracle worker and that's just what he did. They believed Jesus could heal because he was the long-awaited Messiah that they had been waiting for. And they believed he was him. They, they knew according to what they had been taught that that's what the Messiah is going to do. Like he's going to come on the scene. He's going to accomplish the things that are written for us in Isaiah 35 that, that were foretold. And, and here's another interesting take on the story. Is it do you see how we could view this event as some sort of a living parable for you and I? That Jesus not only came to bring physical sight um, to the physically blind, but Jesus actually came to bring spiritual sight and sound to the spiritually blind and the unable to speak of the glory and the wonders of God. Remember what we've seen so far throughout the book of Matthew, that one of the reasons Jesus came was to conquer Satan, right? To defeat Satan once and for all. And that's one of the activities of Satan that we read about in 2 Corinthians 4, that he blinds the minds of unbelievers. So Jesus has come to conquer Satan, to bring sight to the blind, spiritually speaking, and to help us to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus and for light to shine into dark places. This is what Jesus does, and this is who we are in him. We provide a flavor to the land. We bring light into dark places. That's our call, church. But I want to look at a second response to what we see through Jesus in these two chapters. And I have to ask the question, like, how many miracles of Jesus have these two blind men seen? How many? That's, that's not a hard question. They were blind. Chances are they had seen none. Um, so here are these two blind men. They've literally seen nothing. Seen nothing. And yet they believe. Is that not crazy? They've seen nothing and they believe. All they've heard is scatterings, of, like chatterings of people saying, I saw this, I saw that, he did this, he did that. But they have no way to substantiate that because they actually have not even seen it. If you remember the story of Doubting Thomas, how many of you guys know this story? One of the disciples, some of the disciples come to Thomas and they tell him that they saw the Lord and that he'd risen from the dead. And Thomas says this, he says, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were, put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And so Jesus shows up and what's he do? Shows Thomas his scars, puts his hand in the wound in his side, and Thomas goes, my Lord and God. <laughs> And what's Jesus say to him in response to that? He says, because you, because you have seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So the first response for us is belief. Belief in who Jesus was and what he could do. And here's the second response that you see in this passage. And this is a little different. But you see belief and disobedience. And I know this sounds kind of odd, but I want you to hear me out on this. If you look at verse 30 and 31, it says, And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. And what happens? <laughs> they went away and spread his fame throughout all the district. <laughs> 
So they believed, like we know that's true, but then there's this portion of disobedience. And I think it's interesting that in spite of Jesus telling them, commanding them sternly, like rebuking them, it's like Jesus looked into their eyes for the very first time. He's the first thing that they've seen, the first face that they've seen. And, and he goes, don't tell anyone about it. And it made me ask the question this week as I'm reading through this, like, what is it? It says, don't go tell anyone about it. What's the it that Jesus is talking about? It can't be their healing, right? Because the fact is, now they see, and if they go back into the city, what, what are people going to do? Oh, something's different about you. Uh, you know, you, you're, you did you get your hair cut? You know, you're wearing some, Oh, you can see. Oh, my gosh. You know, that, that's crazy. Why didn't you tell me about that? It's like they can't actually hide the fact that they were blind and now they see. That's impossible for them to hide. So what is the it? Why did Jesus so sternly tell them to not go tell anybody else? And the answer is that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah, that the son of David had come, that this is why Jesus delayed in responding to their cries. Like, did you notice even between verses 27 and 28 that there's a delay before Jesus actually, heal, actually heals them? Like, they're following Jesus. They're crying out, have mercy on us, son of David, have mercy on us. Literally screaming, crying out. And Jesus doesn't heal them until they actually go into the house. <laughs> So they're following through the crowds and they're crying out to him. And there's this delay between when Jesus, they cry out to him and when Jesus actually follows through with this healing. And so you can picture the, the crowd like still with Jesus. The, uh, Jesus is going from a place where he's performing miracles. The, the crowds are pressing in on him. Uh, last week we saw that there was this bleeding woman that had come out. She'd been bleeding for 12 years. She comes through the crowd to touch Jesus, and the, the crowd is still with Jesus. And you have these two blind men crying out amongst the people, have mercy, have mercy, and then no response until when? Verse 28, when Jesus enters this house. And what you get between these two verses, between 27 and 28, is you go from a crowd, like they're declaring son of David. They're declaring his messiahship out in the middle of the crowd. And so then you get into the house and Jesus follows through and he heals them. Like, do you believe? Yes, we believe. And then they're healed. Because it actually wouldn't have made sense for Jesus to give this statement amongst the crowd and declare his Messiahship yet. And so they come and Jesus says, do you believe? Do you believe that I can do this? And they say, yes, we believe. And they're healed and they're sent out and they're asked not to tell anybody. And why? Because in part, I think, because Jesus didn't want people proclaiming that he was the Messiah prematurely. But to be a little more detailed, Jesus didn't want people proclaiming that he was the Messiah until they actually understood what kind of Messiah he was. There was a lot of life left to be lived. A lot of lessons for Jesus to teach. A ton of people at this time pursued Jesus for a sign. They just wanted Jesus to heal them. I mean, you look at like the, the feeding of the 5,000 and how, what does Jesus do after he feeds the 5,000? He scurries off into the mountains, right? He's like, I gotta get out of the crowd. These people are stressing me out. Okay, I'm out. And so he leaves. He goes up into the mountains and he gets out of the crowd because Jesus perceived that they were gonna take him by force, it says. 
Like they were going to try to hurry up and make him king because they saw something that only the king could actually do. But Jesus knew that it wasn't time yet. And Jesus also wasn't the type of king that they were looking for. Like Jesus says just a few verses later, Truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of loaves. You came to me because I can fill your stomach. They weren't seeking him because the signs pointed to who he actually was. They were seeking him because Jesus put food in their tummies. And I think that a lot of people pursue Jesus for that today. A lot. The, the Jews wanted a puppet Messiah. They wanted a genie in a bottle. They wanted someone who could put food on the table, somebody who could take the pressure off. They wanted someone to come in and overthrow the Romans. They wanted someone to come in and reestablish the nation of Israel. And Jesus just was not that type of Messiah. And he knew of their perceptions. He knew what they were thinking. He knew what was in the heart of man. And he knew that they needed their view of the Messiah to be recalibrated, to be viewed in light of the cross. And so to view it in light of one who didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And they didn't have that view in mind. But to view him in any other way other than in light of the cross is to actually view Jesus wrongly. And so he sternly warns these two men to keep their yappers shut. Like, don't go tell anybody. And what do they do with that? What do, they, what, what do we do with our disobedience? What do they do with it? What do we do it with it? On one hand, we, we kind of get it and we understand it, right? They could see for the first time, for the first time in their lives, they see people for the first time in their life, they see a face and the face they see is Jesus, their Messiah. And so you can kind of understand how crazy excited these two men are. And so they couldn't go out and not tell anybody how hard would it be to keep that under wraps. My personal opinion when I look at their disobedience is that I kind of prefer their disobedience over most of the time what ours is. Because at the very least, again, I'm not excusing their disobedience, but I prefer their disobedience over ours because what's Jesus saying to them? Don't go tell anybody about this. And what do they do? Tell everybody. And what does Jesus tell us? Tell everybody. And what do we do? Tell nobody. And so, in light of what looks like disobedience to them, I'm like, I'm going, that's pretty cool disobedience, to be honest with you. <laughs> Go and make his name known. And so we, like them, can oftentimes believe and still disobey. And the question I kept wondering this week is, which one's worse? Like the first response was belief. The second was belief and disobedience. But the third response, and I'm going to end on this, is that we can marvel. And if you look at verse 32 and 33, he says this. And they're going away. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute. Remember back on, in Isaiah, um, the book of Isaiah, the passage that says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer in the tongue of the mute. And so, again, here's pointing back to the book of Isaiah. But this demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, it says, the mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, never was anything like this seen 
in Israel. But the Pharisees said he cast out demons by the prince of demons. So I want you to think about what many in this crowd had seen over the last day or so. Think about this. One day, Jesus heals this woman that's been bleeding for 12 years. Some saw this, but at least most heard about this, that Jesus raised this girl, this Jairus' daughter, from the dead. He'd given sight to blind men just moments before this. And then to cap things off, he casts the demon out of the mute man and enables this man to start speaking. This all happens in this day. And so they say, never was anything like this seen in Israel. Now, on one hand, it's, it's amazing that these crowds marveled at Jesus. Like in other places, we read about crowds marveling at the teaching of Jesus, and it's so awesome. But here's the issue, is that in Scripture, crowds are not always necessarily a good thing in the gospel accounts. Most often, they're not, actually. Crowds were, were things that Jesus often had to get away from. Crowds were unpredictable. Crowds were helpless. They, they were like sheep without a shepherd. Crowds fed off of one another. And most often, in negative ways, the crowds would feed off one another. Crowds kept children from coming to Jesus. They kept paralytics from coming to Jesus. Crowds seek to take Jesus by force. And then lastly, the crowds are fickle and crying out, Hosanna to the son of David on Sunday, and then crucifying him days later. These are the crowds. So what crowds also do in the Gospels is they marvel at Jesus while choosing not to follow him. They stand in awe and wonder of the things he does and deliberately walk away and do nothing with it. And I'll say this, crowds are dangerous. We have to be really careful to judge and evaluate ministries based on the size of their crowds. But the third response to the ministry of Jesus, I think is most people's response today, honestly. That most people today are generally positive, we're complimentary towards Jesus, we like what he's about, like we want him to do stuff for us, we appreciate his teachings, like some are amazed by him, in fact they, they speak of the courage that he gave him, they use Jesus as a model for them to replicate their life after and to follow him. Some would even suggest that there's something otherworldly about Jesus, like for instance the fact that he was an amazing prophet, there's something different about him. But most people today, and please listen to this, I think we stop short of declaring along with the blind men his divine messiahship. We stop heeding to the call that he's given us to follow after him. We marvel at Jesus. We're fascinated by Jesus. We're astonished by Jesus, but we choose to not follow after him. And I wonder why. After all you've seen and all you've heard, why? Why would you choose to not follow? Jesus said this, whoever's not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. You're former, you're against them. You're not lukewarm, you're hot, you're cold. Multiple references in scripture. You're on one side or the other, pick a side. And even by not picking a side, you're picking a side. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up here. And I want to close with maybe an obvious question for you guys this morning. But I want you to dig deep into your hearts this morning as I ask this question. 
what's your response? How will you respond to this? In light of what's been displayed by Christ, like you have to respond. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? Do you believe that he's the son of the living God? That you, do you believe that, that, that he came to bring sight and to bring sound? And if that's you, then my challenge to you is to go out and spread his fame. Like whatever district you live in, go out and spread his name. Make him known in the land. Because why would we keep what he's done in us from everybody else? Why would we do that? Like the blind man, if Jesus has honestly saved you, he's rescued you, he's granted you salvation and forgiveness of your sins, why would we receive that and then zip our mouths shut and hide in our houses? When we know the rest of the world is waiting on an answer, scratching for something, look clamoring to try to figure out what to do with their life and what's real and what's not, what's truth and what isn't, and then here we are, the 200 of us sitting in this room, more often than not, that sit there like, I actually have the answer. But I'm gonna keep my mouth shut. I've actually seen Jesus work. I've actually read in scriptures about him. I've actually worshiped his name. I've actually spent time with the church, like engaging Jesus and learning about him and being enamored by his teachings and being in awe by what he has done, what he can do and what he will do. I've been in awe by the fact that he is the Messiah, the one that was prophesied about, that he fulfilled it all and he came to this earth to live this sinless life, to die this brutal death, to resurrect again, to grant us eternal life. And at the end of the day, we're going to be like, no, I'm good. Let me have my life. When I need Jesus, I'll reach for him. But right now, I'm good. Maybe you're somebody who believes that you're currently even living in disobedience yourself. And I think that we all do in some varying degree in our life. But my challenge to you today, and I know this sounds harsh, but it's simple, is to repent, receive the grace of God this morning, and then go out into the district and tell everybody about the grace of God that's been bestowed upon you. And perhaps there's some of you in this room that are at a place where you want Jesus, but you want Jesus on your terms. If he'll be my puppet and do the things that I want and give me the things that I think I need, I will serve him. And my challenge to you today is you have to view Jesus in light of the cross. You have to. And you have to do Jesus, you have to view Jesus in light of the cross that he's called you to pick up and carry. So perhaps some of you in this room have terms that you actually need to die to expectations that you've been holding that Jesus would just do for you what you want but you're not willing to lay anything down for him and maybe some of you in this room are just standing back and you're marveling at the crowd my challenge is simple this morning like can we move from people that just marvel about Jesus to being people that actually follow him like I think you can do both marvel follow tell I have no idea where you're at this morning. I'll, I'll be honest with you to say, I've been in one of those categories at some point in my life. 
for the other. Always found myself back at the feet of Jesus, desperately clinging on to him, knowing that he was the only hope I have. But I've also had seasons of my life when I've been very vibrant in my proclamation of who Jesus is, traveling on the road with a bunch of skateboarders, like having no issue telling anybody about Jesus at any coffee shop we went into, whatever city we're in, wherever we were at. And I've gone through seasons of my life where I've just like kept my mouth shut and I've cowered. And I want to challenge you this morning that if you believe that what we read and what you've heard is true, that he's more than a healer, that he is the Messiah, and you've entrusted your life to him, then what's your response? What does it look like for us to go out and proclaim the love and the grace and the forgiveness of the Most High God, to not only marvel at him and follow him, but to invite others to follow him as well? Would you guys stand with me? When you bow your heads with me, let's close in a word of prayer. Jesus, we come before you this morning, humbly come before you this morning, acknowledging that we are nothing without you, Jesus, that we need you so bad. Pray for each individual in this room this morning, Lord. I pray for a humbling of their hearts. I pray for an opening of their hearts and their minds. Jesus, for those that are in this room who literally feel as the shackles have been put off, put on them and their hearts are bound and hardened and their mouths have been shut. I'm praying in Jesus' name that you come, Lord, that you set their heart free, that you open up their mouth and give them a voice, that you give song to the mute, and that, Jesus, you would give sight to the blind, and that, Jesus, we would be a people that would seriously sit back and marvel at what it is you've done in awe that you have bestowed your grace upon us, but that we would be a people that wouldn't stop there, Lord, that we'd take that and we'd respond in belief and follow after you and trust our life to you, and then we'd be a people who'd go out into the districts and the highways and the byways and proclaim what you have done in our lives by opening up sight for the spiritually blind and giving a voice to the mute that we could tell others about this and invite them to come to know you, Lord, to have the shackles ripped off their hearts, a new life put inside of them, Jesus, and to have their vo- them be, being given a voice and to have, um, Jesus, their eyes begin to see and, 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 God, for their hearts to serve you fully. And I'm praying for your spirit to just empower this church that as we leave these four walls, we know the rubber meets the road when we walk out of here. God, this is cool that we get to be here this morning. We get to open up your word, talk about it, study it, worship, sing songs to you. Uh, But Jesus, what are we going to do with what we know and what we've done? And I pray when we leave here this morning, God, that our hearts will be so filled with your joy. Our hearts will be so filled with appreciation and anticipation, God, that we would be so filled of marvel and wonder at what you've done that, Jesus, we couldn't contain ourselves to go out into this world 
world and tell others that you want to do for them what you have done for us, Jesus. And so I pray your blessing upon each person in here, each marriage in this room, each relationship in this room. I pray, Jesus, that they would sense the hand of God upon their life and that you'd be moving in them right now, Jesus, and you would carry with them as they leave this building that you, Jesus, would have your way with each life and that we would make you known that your fame would extend to the darkest reaches of our county. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As we spend some time singing um, this last song, I challenge you guys to respond however it is that is that Jesus is leading you this morning. If you'd like somebody to pray with you, we'll have people at the prayer table over here to my left, your right, that would love to pray with you. If you need a Bible, you can grab one over there. If you just wanna grab one of our staff and have, them, have us pray with you, you need to talk, we'd love to do so. But as we take this time to sing, please understand the extent of what we're doing this morning is that we're not just singing songs. Our mouths have literally been opened to proclaim and profess the goodness, the worship, the holiness of the Most High God. This is a holy moment that you're partaking in to sing your praises to Him. And so let's do so in such a way that our hearts are expressing themselves to Jesus in song this morning.